episode number 34. Welcome to the Higher Life Podcast. Lessons from Authentic Judaism. Get the inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Higher Life Podcast. In this week's podcast, we're going to have a Torah portion of the week told us, Don't get scammed. Cutting to the essence of life. A powerful parable about love that lasts. A great story about shock and education. And peace in your home, the rules for arguing. And now, the Torah portion of the week. With novel ideas from the classic commentaries. Rabbeinu Bachia brings down in this week's Parsha a Pasuk, a verse like this. Asaph became a hunter, a man of the field, whereas Yaakov was a simple man, a dweller in tents. So he explains that even though they were twins, they had a totally different interest in life. One was running after the material pleasures of this world, that's Esau, and Yaakov was more had a philosophical perspective of reality. And he explains that's why Esau was called Edom, which comes from the word Adama. He was a man of the land. But unfortunately, a man who is just running after pleasure is far from God, because he makes his worldly pleasure the atzim, the essential thing, and God he puts on the back burner. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with physical pleasures, but everything has to be in the proper balance. Rabbein Obachi explains that anyone who is focused just on the pleasures of this world, in the end he's going to feel that he was ripped off, he was deceived. And this is exactly what Esau said. He described himself as being deceived twice. The Pesach says, And Yaakov has tricked me twice. He took my birthright, and now he is taking my blessing. So Rabbein Obachi explains why is that true. Because anyone who's just running after pleasures and satisfaction in this world, which are really only temporary, in the end, he's going to feel that he was scammed. He says the time will come later in life where they'll cry out bitterly and realize that life has deceived them. He brings the Pasuk from Mishle. For the lips of the immoral woman drip honey. Her mouth is smoother than oil. But at the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And this was the lifestyle of Esav, which in the end turns out bitter. And he explained that the lentils, which Esav wanted because of the suda, the meal, of Avram Avinu's Avelis, the morning for Avram Avinu, those lentils we know, Al represent the cycle of life because they're round. That's why we eat them at the time of morning, to remind us that life is constantly being recycled. Like Shlomo Melech said, there's nothing new under the sun. And the lentils represent this idea of a circle, which even though it looks like there's progress and looks like things are happening, but in the end you're just going around and around which by definition means that there's no progress, and later in life, people are going to feel disappointed and ripped off. So now I want to talk about the personality type, that his whole focus is just on this world. How can you have two people, Yaakov and Esau, that are twins, that are so different? What's the personality of this type of person who just focuses on the now? So the Shemesh Mu'ah brings a Pusik from the end of the Parsha. The verse says, And Esav saw that the daughters of Canaan were evils in the eyes of Yitzchak, his father. Why? Because Esav understood that he sent off Yaakov to get his wife from a different place. So the next verse continues and says that Esav went to Yishmael and took Machalas, Bas Yishmael, the daughter of Yishmael, Ben Avram, Achos Navios, the sister of Navios, in addition to his wives, as a wife for himself. So Esau went and ran and got himself a different wife, a new wife, in addition to the other wives that he had, from the family of Avraham. 
So the Shem Shmuel wants to explain that the sequence of these Pesukim was critical. In other words, after Esav saw that he got ripped off and his luck was going in the wrong direction, his whole life fell apart. At that point, he ran to get another wife. Why? Because he thought that if he got another wife from Avram who was blessed, his mazel would change. But he kept the old wives. So he explains that's exactly how somebody thinks who's only thinking in terms of externals. Instead of doing a cheshbon and nefesh and thinking, what did I do wrong? Where's my part in the story? He based everything external, so I'll do something external, I'll get myself another wife. And that's going to change my mazel. He says that Esav was so thoroughly wicked that he could not imagine that anything he could possibly have done himself had caused his misfortune. And that's exactly in the name of Esav, because the word Esav, the same letter, is also spelled Asa, made, completed. He felt no need for self-improvement at all. He was perfect, complete. Even the gematria, if you know, the numerical value of Esav, which is 376, comes out to peace, shalom. He was totally at peace with himself. He had no problem with his lifestyle, and he thought everything was fine. So if he wanted to change something, he would just have to change something external. And he didn't even think of divorcing his other wives that were bad. In other words, I'll just change the external thing. It's nothing, nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. And then my muscle will change. On the other hand, you have Yaakov. Yaakov literally means heal. He saw himself as a lowly person. And he always realized that he could always do better, improve himself, always do more, always looking internally, doing cheshbon and nefesh, accounting of his soul to check out what was happening. There's a Gemara Brachos that says like this, Anyone who refers to Yisrael as Yaakov has not transgressed, as the Torah itself calls him by, by that name later on. In other words, he was both Yaakov and Yisrael. Even though he reached to great spiritual heights, he never lost sight that there's something more he can do, a better level, a higher level, more perfection, better character. We know that Yaakov had the quality of Emes. We know that Yaakov had the quality of Emes. That's the quality of Yaakov, truth. He was called an Ishtam, Two letters of the word emes, tough for mem. And we know up in Kabbalah, he's, he's represented by teferis, which is the balance between chesed, which was Abraham, and gevura, which was Yitzchak. Yaakov comes out emes, in the middle. But the question was, in terms of the character and personality types, is even though we are spiritual and physical together, but what's essential? What's the most important quality? So we know that Yaakov was focused on the spiritual which is the essence. Alpi Kabbalah, we have a concept called a klipa, which means an external shell. For example, you have a fruit. So the essence of the fruit, the apple, whatever fruit it is, is the meat of the apple. The outer shell is just a covering. You have to have both. This world requires both. But what's the essence? The fruit, the inner part. And that was Yaakov. On the other hand, Esau was always focused on the external. We have another famous Chazah that says, he used to deceive his father. He asked his father how to tithe how to bring Meiser, 10% from salt and from straw, which both of them don't require Meiser. And what's the nimshah of salt and straw? Salt is an external, you put a little bit of salt on a meal. It's not the essence of a meal, it's just the side point. And straw is the non-essential part of, of the wheat. Of course, you can use straw to do things with it, but it's not essential. So he was mixed up. What was the eker and what was the tuffle? What was the essential part and what was the non-essential part? And he was asking his father, listen, can we make the non-essential part essential? That was his philosophy in life. Let's make the non-essential part of life. Let's make that essential. The pleasures, the physical aspects, 
But in the end, he's going to feel ripped off. It's what he felt. In the end, you're going to, a person will feel, what did I do all my life? If a person does not focus on spiritual, he doesn't focus on internal growth, in the end, he'll turn around and he'll feel bad about his life. He'll feel like a loser. The Malbim also brings down this concept. He uses a little bit different language. He talks about Tzura V'chomer. Tzura, which means the form of something, and Chomer, which means the physical aspect of something. But the essence is Tzura, the purpose of something. What's the conceptual understanding of it? And he says in the development of a baby, a human being also, the Chomer comes first and the Tzura comes later. It's only at first that the baby is, the baby is purely physical, and as the baby grows, his mind starts to develop, and then he starts to get the tzura, the, the concepts of things. And he explains that we also see this in the symbolism that Yaakov was holding on to Esav's heel. In other words, only after Esav develops the world and builds it for thousands of years, only then in the end, Yaakov is going to come and bring out the essence of what life is about. But it's a second stage. But it's a second stage. It's a deeper level, looking towards the essence of life. So I want to end off with Rav Volbi, who brings out two interesting points. He brings a Pusik from the beginning of the Parsha that says like this, These are the offsprings of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. And Avram begot Yitzchak. Why does it say Avram's name twice? Because people were making fun of Avram. They wanted to claim that it was Avimelech who got Sarah pregnant, not Avram. He was too old. So therefore Hashem changed that Yitzchak's face looked exactly like Avram. Rav Volbi brings out, it's unbelievable. It's astounding. How could it be that people were making fun of Avram Avinu. We have no idea, no concept of what it would be like to be in the presence of Avram Avinu. God forbid to make fun of him. So he explains, he brings the Maharal who says, in every generation, no matter how big the Sadiqim are, they're still going to be Rishayim. Even by Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron, Yehadassan of Aviram. There's always going to be free will. So the point is that a person has to be very careful not to fall into the wrong category of people. He has to constantly cling to the Torah and strive for spirituality or also fall down. Which comes to the last point, which is a passage that says like this, Revolbi says, Esav scorned the birthright. It was disdainful. He didn't want it. He was not interested in the birthright. He was not interested in this idea of spirituality. He didn't believe in the next world and he did not want it and nothing to do with him. So Revolbi explained that a person who makes fun of a spiritual level, who doesn't care about it, he will lose that level. He says one thing for certain. He who scorns a spiritual level forfeits that level. He brings down that every generation before the generation of Moshe argued that they should receive the Torah. But Hashem counted them, telling them how they sinned, how they weren't 100% committed. You have to be 100% committed without showing any type of disrespect for the Torah. He brings down Rev Yeruchim who says, People think they're master over their mitzvahs. In other words, I'll do the mitzvah when I feel like it. What's the problem? I got the mitzvah in my pocket. I decide when I do mitzvahs. He says, that is not true. He says, really the mitzvahs are masters over us. If a person does not show the proper respect to mitzvahs, he will lose the ability to do mitzvahs. Rav Yeruchim says that in his generation, the Polish government was planning to stop shechita. And he explained that's because the people weren't mysterious nefesh for shechita. They didn't care about shechita. So the, no problem, the Polish government will take it away. Revolbi says the same thing in the idea that the Israeli government brings women into the army. Fine, people don't care about modesty, so that's what's going to happen. Hashem's going to make it that the women go into the army. So in order to not fall into the headspace that what is essential is not essential, and what's not essential becomes essential, 
we have to be very careful. We have to show ourselves. We have to guard ourselves to keep all the mitzvahs, to give tremendous kavod to the mitzvahs and to the chachamim, so that our mind stays clear as to what the goal is. We keep our eye on the ball. And God forbid we shouldn't fall into the ways of the world that are telling us, listen, the main thing is just now, just forget about it, no problem. Because at the end, we're going to turn out sour grapes. It's going to be bad news. We're going to feel we wasted our lives. We didn't grow. We didn't produce anything of real tochen, of real value, that we could take with us to the next world. In other words, our own spiritual development. That's all that a man has. So from this week's Parsha, we learn that we should keep our eye on the ball. Here is a powerful parable. Open your mind and help you reach your potential. So the Magni Maduba brings a Pusik from this week's Parsha that says like this. Yitzchak loved Esav because he ate of his trappings, and Rivka loves Yaakov. So we ask, why, why was it that Yitzchak loved Esav in the past, and Rivka loves Yaakov in the present? So the Masha goes like this. Sometimes a city gets a new rabbi appointed to it. So the residents are all praising him because he seems to have an expansive Torah knowledge and he's a very good speaker. But he says, really, there's two possibilities. Either this guy is really a genuine Tamachachim who knows Shasim Poskim, he knows everything, and he's very well learned. On the other hand, it could be that he doesn't know anything. He just picked up a few ideas from here and there. He says them over in his own name, but he doesn't really know. So as time goes by, it's going to come out. If the Rav is really a scholar, so the respect for him is going to grow and grow. Because the more the people come to know him, the more knowledge you're going to realize that he has. But on the other hand, if he was a faker, as every day goes by, it's going to come out more and more. Because they're going to see he doesn't know this, he doesn't know that. So it's the same thing with Yaakov and Esau. It says Yitzchak loved Esau in the past. Because as time went by, Yitzchak started to see that Esau really wasn't who he thought he was. On the other hand, Rivka loves Yaakov because the more she heard him learning Torah and saw who he really was, the more she loved him. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. So one time Rav Shach was asked the advice by someone who wanted to know where to put their young son in school. There were two possibilities. That they could either put them in a new cheder, Talmud Torah, that was just beginning, or a well-established Kinech system. The new Talmud Torah was for families of Talmud Hakamim. The fathers were full-time learners. They were very religious families. But the problem was, since it was a new school, the level was going to be very low. It wasn't established yet. On the other hand, the Chinuch Atzmai had a mixed crowd there. Didn't know which kind of families the children came from. But the level in terms of the learning was higher. So the man wanted to know, where should my son go to school? So Rav Shach said like this. The lower level of learning is a deficiency that could be overcome. In other words, you can get yourself tutors, private lessons. You can always build up and as time goes by, obviously, the Talmud Torah, the level is going to go up. On the other hand, unhealthy friendships is something that's not easy to break. If your kid gets involved with the wrong kids, it's a big problem. And he brought a great riot from this week's Parsha. It says, the children agitated within her. In other words, we know that Rifka didn't know what to do because every time she would walk past a place of uh, idol worship so her belly would start to move and the Asaph was trying to jump out and every time she would walk by Talmud Torah a place of learning Kedusha holiness Yaakov was trying to jump out so Rav Shach said like this there's a Gemara in Nida that says that when the baby is inside the mother's stomach he's taught Kua Torah Kulo he knows the entire Shas 
He's being taught by angels all the Torah. And when he leaves, he forgets all of his learning. So he said, I can understand why Esau was trying to jump out. He's not interested in this Torah stuff. He just wanted to get out of there, forget about it, and move on with his life. But why was Yaakov trying to jump out? Yaakov was inside the womb. He had the greatest situation. He's being taught Torah. Everything was great. So why was he trying to jump out? What was he expecting to get by going to an external base midrash when he was already learning Torah inside the womb? So Rav Shach said to the man, Yaakov was faced with the same dilemma you were experiencing. Quality of learning versus environment. Why it's true that Yaakov had tremendous quality of learning, but his environment was very bad. He was in there with Aesop, so he wanted to get out at any cost. So he says, we see from this, a healthy spiritual positive setting is more vital than maintaining a superior level in learning. And it's better your son goes to the Talmud Torah where he'll have good friends. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. The last week, Rev. Dynamite spoke about how to fight. This is why we're going to talk about how to argue. It brings the Chassam Sofer. Chazal tells us there are no two faces that are exactly the same, which teaches us what? There are no two opinions which are exactly alike. Every individual has a different day, a different way of looking at things. So the Chassam Sofer says, we have no problem with accepting the fact that everybody has a different face. But when it comes to opinion, somehow we think everybody should think like us. How could somebody think differently than me? We have to internalize this idea that other opinions are just as valid as ours. So that's the basis for arguing. Here's rule number one. Arguing with your wife or your husband is not like a formal debate. Because what goes on in a formal debate? Nobody's listening to each other. Each one's there to prove their side. That's not what an argument is about. Argument is actually to listen to the other side. In a formal debate, you never say, or you say, hey, maybe you're right. I never thought about that. But that's, that's what should be happening in the marriage. The only positive thing about a formal debate is you cannot interrupt the other person while they're speaking. So that's good. But in terms of actually having an argument with your wife or your husband, you need to listen to them. The point isn't to prove that you're right. So he says they had cases of marriages. Eight years, for example, he brought in a couple that after eight years of marriage, he forced them to listen to each other. And that was the first time they'd actually hurt each other. And another case after 20 years, because they're always interrupting each other. So rule number one is not like a formal debate. In other words, you must really listen to what the other side is saying and not just try to prove your point. Rule number two, when okay is not okay. A lot of times a husband and wife fights. They say, okay, okay. He said, that's not okay. He says that each couple has to explain its side. It can't just give some kind of evasive answer. I don't know. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I, I feel that it's wrong. He says, many couples, it's more convenient just to argue for argument's sake and to be evasive and not answer to the point, because this way they could be right in the meantime. He said, every couple should try this exercise. You can't answer in an argument because, caja. Each time you have to give the reasoning, the real reason for what you're saying. He says, many times couples have couples say, I don't have the strength for such a thing. How can I give her my opinion each time and explain myself? So he says back to him, do you have the strength to be divorced with your four children? Many times couples are just fighting for the sake of fighting. Rule number three. He says it's a good idea to finish your argument in writing. Write everything down. You could give a response within 24 hours. For example, in other words, you're fighting. Okay, I'm going to write my side down. This way, the letter, you can't raise your voice. You can't make faces. You can't have slips of tongue. You can't bury your nose in the ground. Glare at the other person. Ignore the other person. Even the harshest comment could be softened with the pen. He says, though, very few people manage to do such a thing. 
But it doesn't matter, he says. You know why? Because even after people write these things down, 95% do not give the letter to the other person because they're too embarrassed of what they wrote. After they read it the next day, they're like, oh my God, what did I say? He says, the letters just show us that we don't realize that it's the little things that can ruin our lives. And rule number four, he says, is we have to learn how to argue and remain friends. Just because you're arguing doesn't mean you have to hate each other. We need to learn that you can argue with someone and be divided and still remain essentially united, connect to them through one's speech. An argument does not have to be a full-fledged fight. Okay, that's it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. Your voicemail could be featured on the Higher Life Podcast. Just visit RabbiMinterhoff.com to ask questions or leave comments. 